Do you have a different perspective on VCs than you had one when you were raising money and being rejected by 40 VCs? Nope. Um, I mean, I, I have, I have, I think, a greater understanding of why they behave that way. Um, you know, I'll give you a few factors that explain it. One is it's really hard to raise money from LPs. I mean, you know this. And, uh, you know, we have the blessing of having one LP who's been great to us. But as hard as founders have it, trying to raise money from VCs, it is 10 times harder for VCs to raise money from LPs, um, 10 times more meetings needed, 10 times less predictable. You know, there is no like place you can look up a list of LPs that I'm aware of that, you know, <laughs> are fit for your fund stage and that kind of thing. Roy Bahat is one of the founders of Bloomberg Beta. I met Roy through my friend Siobhan Silas, also a partner at Bloomberg Beta, who was in one of her earlier podcasts on Array talking about artificial intelligence. Bloomberg Beta is one of my favorite firms to work with, and not only because they're also an LP in my fund Array Ventures, but because I respect how they've built their firm and constructed their portfolio in a thoughtful way. They're the only firm I know that sends a survey to their companies asking for their feedback on what they can do better. Bloomberg Beta was born out of Roy's frustration when he was raising money for his own startup. That's when Roy saw a need to start a fund with transparency, focus on their experience with the founders, and clear thesis on future of work. With so many VC firms being formed the last few years, differentiation is important to be able to attract the right entrepreneurs. Let's dive into how Roy thought about building a new VC firm from scratch and how he thinks about the VC industry today with all the changes in recent years. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. Once you thought you wanted to be a VC, how did you start this journey of um, setting up the fund, thinking through who you want to work with, um, the, the creating a thesis? And these are a lot of questions, but what was the first thing you did? When Bloomberg approached me about doing a fund, um, my view was that it could only work for them if it was just investing to make money, because that's the only way to really be a first-class citizen in the startup ecosystem, at least at the earliest stages. And, you know, fortunately, they were really supportive of that. And, you know, their interest was they just wanted to create a nexus between them and the world of startups generally. And they were happy to accept the irony that by not investing as a strategic investor, you would actually have better participation in the ecosystem, even if you knew that you had to respect the confidentiality of the companies in which you consider investing and ultimately invest. So that was kind of the Bloomberg side of it. And then the question was, okay, now does the world need another seed stage, you know, early VC? And my feeling about that was that despite the fact that there is lots of money, I'd you know, gotten no yeses from 40 pitches to VCs when I started a company. And so I felt like, and then 
and you know, and then managed to go on to successfully raise a bunch and create a really valuable service and blah blah blah. And so that convinced me that there was a hole in the market. And um, and so basically, I thought, what are all of the things that VCs do that I don't like? and or did not like as a founder and can we flip the bit on all of those things so you know it's very hard to figure out who in a vc is the decision maker so we are a firm where anyone says yes you know it's very hard to figure out what a vc's areas of focus are sometimes and so you know we decided to be as transparent as possible and put our entire previously internal operating manual up on github and open source it and you know it seemed like VCs were often optimizing for the price at which a company would raise in its next round, its paper value. Um, and when I say often, of course, the very best are always an exception, but I just mean on average. Um, and so we thought that seems like a silly metric because it seems like you're then solving for what other VCs want to fund as opposed to what can be successful. And so we decided to solve for founder net promoter score of us on the theory that that was the short-term metric we could move that was most associated with long-term change. And so that's how we set it up. Now, as you know, it takes a long time in VC to know if you are successful. And, you know, I hope, I feel great about where we are, but, you know, it's going to take 10 years or more to know if all of these choices actually added up to something that made for a great venture firm or not. So it goes to the, the on the other half of the seven to 10 year cycle that we, we talk about in a cynical way. So have you changed your thoughts on um, things that you were set out to do yeah. when you started the firm? So what are, yeah, yeah what, this, tell us more so about that. So what's unchanged is future of work has been our focus from moment one. Um, uh, you know, the kind of the approach that I described in terms of transparency as a way to build trust and founder NPS, that's unchanged. But there have been two major changes. The first thing is something we dropped, which when we started the fund, we thought, you know, at the earliest stages, there's really not that much of a difference between investing and building. And I was inspired by a lot of the parallel entrepreneurs who created multiple businesses at once while investing and blah, blah, blah. And what I discovered, at least for me, is that um, it's hard enough to just be a great investor and we wanted to focus. And so we dropped that side of things that was about building stuff. Um, and then the second biggest change um, is the rise of machine intelligence as a focus area. You know, a few months after we started the fund, uh, you know, Siobhan Zillis, who's one of our partners, came to me and, you know, obviously somebody you know well, she introduced us. Um, and, uh, and she came to me and she said, hey, I think we should be focusing on artificial intelligence. And I just thought she was wrong. I thought it was way too early. And I encouraged her that if it's, you know, it's her time to waste if she wants to waste it, but just go for it. And she did. And, you know, a couple of months into her research on what startups were doing in machine intelligence, I just saw the breadth of where startup activity was. And I realized I had been completely wrong. And so I reversed course and the whole fun sort of school of fish to being um, very focused on machine intelligence. And, you know, it's been a main focus of ours since then. I remember sitting in Siobhan's house, um, going through the research once in a while and being impressed by what she'd found. Um, so I'm, I'm told you encourage, you and the team encourage her to share that. So thank you for that. Yeah, of um, course. So the thesis changes, so is that something that a VC firm founder has to constantly think through? Or do you recommend 
more of a generalist well, approach. Well, our thesis that. didn't really change. I mean, the technology areas we were interested in changed. But, I'm, you know, for me, so one of the nice things about our team is we have a diversity of many different styles and approaches. And one specific area where we have diversity is um, how much we are attached to theses. And I'm probably the least attached to theses, meaning I don't have a point of view that says, oh, a company doing X is going to be wildly successful if it's started right now. Um, in the sense that success takes nine to 11 years. And I'm just not smart enough to know what's going to be a big deal nine to 11 years from now. And so I'm not particularly thesis driven in that sense. Um, and, you know, it's also easier for me in the sense that therefore I don't feel like I have a constant need to update my theses. What I do have are areas where I feel I personally or we, in terms of other partners in our fund, are better than the average bear at assessing those areas. And we try to only invest in areas where we feel like we have a chance to be, to have a superior judgment about what's likely to work. So again, now doing this for close to five years, do you have a different perspective on VCs than you had one when you were raising money and being rejected by 40 VCs? Nope. <laughs> Thanks for the honesty. Um, I mean, I, I have, I have, I think a greater understanding of why they behave that way. Um, you know, I'll give you a few factors that explain it. One is it's really hard to raise money from LPs. I mean, you know this, and uh, you know, we have the blessing of having one LP who's been great to us. But as hard as founders have it trying to raise money from VCs, it is 10 times harder for VCs to raise money from LPs, um, 10 times more meetings needed, 10 times less predictable. You know, there is no like place you can look up a list of LPs that I'm aware of that, you know, are fit for your fund stage and that kind of thing from the culture of the startups that they back, right? Like VC offices are generally, they look like law offices. They're really nice. Mm -hmm. And they're modern, but they're quiet. They're almost church-like in a way. And it wasn't until I started spending time with LPs that I realized, oh, the VC culture is that way because it's sort of the midpoint between startup culture and LP culture, if you will. How did you structure the fund to operate the way you do? Um, it's very simple, which is we are just a fund. I mean, I think most of the reason why corporate VC struggles um, is because it falls in love with ideas that are true inside planet corporate um, and obey the gravity of planet corporate, but not true outside. For example, I think most corporate VCs overweight the value of the relationship with their corporate parent. Um, mm -hmm. I think that most of them assume that because the, the executive who was the sponsor of creating the VC was into it and is powerful at that moment, that it will last. And, you know, we Bloomberg, the company has a new CEO since we started Bloomberg Beta. And yet, you know, we've been able to endure and receive the support of the company in part because we have just a fund structure. You know, we're now in fund two. Fund two, which is $75 million, is exactly the same size as fund one. And, you know, the, the, the question of how to create a stable venture firm that could be a first-class citizen that the best startups would want to work with, which is often a question I ask about other corporate VCs, like, why would the best startups want to work with you? And oftentimes the answer is that they wouldn't. Um, but that's the, you know, the question of how to create a VC firm like that is a solved question. And so we just took those answers, which is funds of approximately this duration and approximately this size, and we innovated on them 
not at all and just created something that we thought would work for us in our context. So, but why keep the Bloomberg name then? I mean, there are other firms which have one LP like Norwest and, and, and Scale and, and Sapphire in the early days, all of that. So why keep the name um, or do you think that the name still is helpful or will you go, I mean, this is lots of questions in one question, yeah. but do you think you'll no, go I mean, through a rebranding? So there, no, we're not going to go through a rebranding. We are Bloomberg Beta. Uh, the, there are many answers to that question. The simplest one is Bloomberg wanted it to carry the Bloomberg name, and I love the Bloomberg, carrying the Bloomberg name. And yeah. we, you know, we agreed to do it, um, you know, in, because we uh, were aligned with values and aligned with the brand, and so that's just extending on the same thing. The other thing is it's just transparent. You know, when if somebody takes money from a firm that is 100% backed by one company, they might as well know the name. Um, and um, and then you know we did do some outside research on brand awareness of venture funds, and the two venture funds that have the greatest unaided awareness outside the tech industry are Google. Ventures and I assume Google Capital, although we didn't test it, or Capital G, whatever they're called now, and Bloomberg Beta, and that's just because outside of the tech world, nobody knows the names of any of these firms, and so that's of real value to our companies in the sense that when they call on a customer and say we are backed by blank, you know, we want the name that they say to increase the odds that they close the sale. Now you thought about partnerships and decision making a little different as well. Like there are firms who. Uh, there have been a lot of studies done, and I've personally spent so much time with a lot of VC firms trying to think through how the good decisions get done, and a lot of them are consensus-based and things like that, and you do not do that. So um, explain to me wh- how you got there, and does does that um, worry you in any way? I mean, the reason behind this question is um, you are financially responsible to return money, and you can trust your decisions, but you can't trust the decisions of your own partnership um, sometimes. And I've seen a lot of funds fall apart from having a bad structure around this, which can explain why VCs can be so opaque sometimes, things and such. So you've given that a lot of thought. So I want to know more about like how you got here and what do you think about this generally uh, reflecting on the market? Yeah, so you know, um, we do have a different fund decision structure, which is any one of us says yes and we do a deal. Um, you know, first, I would only want to be partners with people who I trusted their deal judgment. It doesn't mean I'm going to agree on every deal. In fact, probably the worst, some of the worst deals we've done have been the ones where I've been the champion. And I actually think my partners are better decision makers than I am. And we've been explicit about that as a team. Um, that said, you know, our strategy is a function of our stage, first of all, where the sin at the seed stage is to miss something great, not to you know, uh, the, relative to the risk of losing money in any one deal. So we want to have a bias toward catching unusual companies. So that's number one. Number two, um, you know, the data suggest that the best VC investments ever were ones that were controversial within their partnership. And also, anecdotally, you hear about these misses where one amazing person had total conviction and somebody who was much less involved shut them down. And as a result, they missed on something huge. Now, would they also make more mistakes? Yeah, but I want to have a high error rate 
if that is the trade for having a chance of catching the one. And, you know, we want every investment we make, um, you know, uh, in general to have a chance of returning the entire fund. Um, the third reason has to do with how founders work with the fund. One of the most frustrating things I found when raising money was you'd go meet with a firm and you wouldn't really know how the relationship between the person you're pitching and the firm's decision to invest would play out. And they would keep it very opaque generally, even if they thought they were being transparent by saying, well, we all talk about it and then we decide, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, you just, you, what you couldn't read were the power dynamics of, oh, well, that partner did a deal last month that the other person didn't like, and therefore they want to pay them back and, you know, all that stuff. And so first of all, I want it to be legible to founders that whoever you meet, that person can say yes. Um, and second, um, I did not want to create dynamics within our fund of, you know, of the inevitable log rolling that can happen when, you know, you, I need your support on this one, therefore you need my support on that one and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, very last thing was just a moment that I remember when um, one of my partners, when James Cham came to me early in the life of the fund and he's like, I'm going to recommend we do this deal. And he had spent so much time with that founder. I was like, how could the rest of us possibly have a valid a perspective anywhere near as valid as yours? Now, we still talk about every deal. We all challenge each other really Really hard to make sure that there's a lot of conviction there. And then the other fun thing that has happened is I was worried that in this anyone says yes structure, there would be sort of a feeling of like, oh, that's James's deal or Karen's deal. And therefore, blah, blah, you know, uh, you know I'm not going to be as supportive. But our culture has turned out for reasons that honestly, I wish I could explain fully. It's just been a great blessing that once we, you know, in deciding it's any one person says yes. Um, but then once we've decided we all work for that company, we all share same carry pool, you know, no different economics depending on who did the deal. And so that's been a lot of fun because I feel like I get this, like these like fun presents of one of my partners does a deal. Sometimes I haven't even met the founders and then I'm working for them cause you know, they're my customer. And then I get to know them. I'm like, wow, this awesome person who I, you know, would never have gotten to know and who I now get to serve. And so that's a lot of fun. Uh, I always joke that um, the best no, the best no VCs have created is my partnership did not agree, which is yeah. I don't want to do it. But it's just they don't want to say that. Um, well, so, sometimes it means I don't want to do it. Sometimes it means I really wanted yeah. to do it and I fought for you and I lost, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I couldn't get it done. But that's the point. You don't know um, yeah. until until you spend a lot of time on that. Exactly. Um, but the the question is though, uh, like. LPs often want to know how well you know your partners, and I love, love, love your, you know, your partners. As you know, like Thank I love, you. I love Me too. the team. <laughs> I love, I love having you as my. I love every part. You know, I model so Thank much. Thank you. We are we are proud to be to have you as our customer too. Oh, thank you. But I think question is like how long did you know each other to build this trust that you talk about to. To just say, you know, Siobhan, James, Karen, you know, you do the deal and, and I trust you. Like, how do you get there? Um, I lucked out, to <laughs> be perfectly honest. Um, you know, 
James and I had known each other for a while just in the Bay Area in the industry. And then Siobhan and Karen had been in different parts of Bloomberg, and I got to know them in the process of doing this. And to be fair, you know, it wasn't day one that the fund was set up that we all agreed to come together. It was probably, I don't know, six to nine months in, maybe six months in when we all came together. Um, and so there was a period of time of talking to each other and getting to know each other and looking at things. But it easily could have turned completely sideways because, you know, as you get to know people, you discover things and sometimes you discover things that you don't like. And, you know, at least speaking for myself, it has been and I think speaking for every pair comparison, it has been a process of just being progressively more pleased with, um, you know, with the caliber of people who we have as partners and, you know, also with the diversity of it. And so, you know, I mentioned diversity of sourcing beliefs, like how thesis driven we are, but there's also also personality. I mean, there are founders who click with James, who don't click with me. Um, you know, uh, gender, you know, we're 50-50, which is, you know, I wish I could say I designed for that too, but I think I just lucked out on a bunch of different dimensions. And, you know, I'm much more instinctive and Karen is much more analytical and com contemplative. And that's really good. You know, that, that, that mutual respect combined with difference of decision-making and styles um, has just worked really well. And I do think the anyone says yes thing is a nice backstop because it means that none of us has to fear that somebody else is going to have power over them in terms of the ability to make decision. If you have conviction and it's in scope for us, we're going to invest. Is the fund structured to, uh, you know, any differently to promote any partner uh, and, you know, based on the deal or is it like a common nope. pool? Common pool. Okay. Um, all for one, one then, for all. Mostly, by the way, because I'm not, I, I, you know, when you get into designing those structures, they just seem like a lot of brain damage. And so yeah. we're just trying to keep things simple. And on the theory that if we hit, we're all going to be happy. And yeah, maybe somebody will end up feeling like, oh, well, you know, we hit and it was all my deals. And therefore, in retrospect, I should have earned more. And we'll deal with that if we have to deal with that later. But I just, given the personalities of the people involved, I just can't imagine, it's hard for me to imagine that, that they would feel that way. Yeah. So how do you stay and stick to your conviction for those seven years, not knowing that it was the right or, you know, decision for that long? And so a lot I guess, of meditation. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Look, to be clear, we picked these approaches not because we wanted to just wanted to run a venture fund that way. We believe that this is the best way to earn extraordinary returns over time. You know, we could have easily tried to jam money into companies that were going to flip quickly, you know, but that just hasn't been our thing. Um, uh, and, you know, I have no idea if we're right. Uh, and only time will tell. So um, a lot of meditation and patience. And as an operator, um, uh, you know, uh, as an operator, I have to say the hardest thing about starting a venture fund for me, there were two hard things. One, I think a lot of operators deal with, which is, uh, which is wanting to feel like you were, had operational influence at the companies that you oversaw. And I remember really early on, I met this founder who I really liked 
and was considering investing in. And James said to me, he said, oh, like, remember when you were a CEO? Do you want to invest in this founder because they're exactly the kind of person you would have wanted to hire on your leadership team? I was like, yeah, exactly like that. He's like, yeah, don't do that. Because you want to hire the person who you want to work for them, not the other way around. I was like, wow. And it really just changed my perspective on a lot of aspects of the relationship, just in that one comment. Um, But the second thing, which is what you're getting to more directly with this question, is that it takes so long to know if you know what you're doing. And it is so luck-driven. You know, I describe VC as a game. You know, some people said VC is a game of home runs. And then I think Bill Gurley said, it's no, it's actually a game of grand slams. I actually think it's a game where the biggest performance metric that matters is the tape measure distance of your single longest home run. But the balls take 10 years in the air. And in the meanwhile, you're just sitting there looking up saying, yeah, I really hope none of them crash or that the one that you know stays up the longest goes really far and i don't know how to deal with that other than practicing equanimity um, while continuing to try to help every company we have succeed as much as possible and make great new investments in companies that have a shot of being that longest tape measure or home run final question roy where do you go to get knowledge on learning more about the venture business Great question. I ask, when I talk to VCs, I ask them questions that are not quite as thoughtful, but, you know, in a similar direction to the questions (laughs) that you're asking me. No, I mean, and I've heard everything from VCs that rotate their leadership, you know, every year to, you know, how they track their data. We ask a lot about tooling, like what CRM do people use? Um, and so I ask a lot of questions and then I just try to, and I talk to customers a lot. You know, I'm often asking founders what they think about funds um, because that's customer research. And then I try to make up my own mind based on the data that I have, but I'm not sure that I have a great way of figuring it out. And of course there are a handful of journalists that cover the VC space and I think do a really good job of it. Um, and so I talk to them and then, you know, LPs call me from time to time looking for a reference on another fund. They know I'm not trying to raise from them. So it's a different kind of a relationship. And I ask them what they're seeing that they think is productive and interesting. So just a lot of, I'm very curious. I could ask people questions all day long about what they do for almost anybody. And then I just try to learn from that. Uh, thank you, Roy. This is, thank you for all the honesty. That's what I love about our interactions. Um, I know that a lot of the founders are going to really, founder of VCs really appreciate what you've no, I mean, thank you for doing this. I think, look, I see the founders of VC funds as founders, and it's a different kind of a challenge because it's not as emotionally grueling as starting a company, which I think is the hardest job, but it is difficult, more difficult to raise the initial capital. And so there's just a funny balance there that is challenging. And um, and so I just really respect that. And for people who start funds, you know, bravo. I hope you succeed.